1: I know a lot of people were watching Layla Fernandez advance to the final of the U.S. Open women's final, which happens tomorrow. That was last night. But there was also the debate, of course, with this federal election campaign we have going on. Don't forget, advance polling starts today. Go to Elections Canada website for more information on where you can do all of that. But in case you missed the debate, uh, we've got you covered on this. We are going to break it all down with Global National Ottawa correspondent Mike LeCouture coming up in just a few minutes. But we thought let's run through some of the highlights for you, first of all. Okay, So during the debate, uh, let's see, there was a time when Liberal leader Justin Trudeau and Green Party leader Annamie Paul had an interesting exchange over the issue of sexual misconduct in the armed forces.
2: We recognize that there are systems and institutions that need to change across the country, and that's why uh, from the very beginning, we stepped up with policies, new policies, stronger policies and processes to support every survivor, everyone who comes forward, because nobody should deserves to work in a workplace uh, where they are being discriminated against where they are being uh uh, harassed uh, or hassled we have been unequivocal about that my leadership has been unequivocal about that yes these problems continue in workplaces across the country particularly in the military That's unacceptable, which is why we've taken even stronger measures. It's unsatisfactory to have to say we're relying on process in this. We want to just be able to have easy answers. Ms. Paul, what's your response to that? With easy answers, you have to fall back on process.
3: I have said before, and I'll say again tonight, that I do not believe that Mr. Trudeau is a real feminist. A feminist doesn't continue to push strong women out of his, um, out of his party uh, when uh, they are just seeking to serve. And I will say their names tonight and thank them. Thank you, Jane Philpott. Thank you, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Thank you, Selena Cesar Chavez. And I'm here tonight thanks to the work that you have done. I believe that if there were more women on this platform tonight and in previous years that we in fact uh, would have better uh, better laws in our military. We would have far um, childcare at this point. We would have many of the things that we need. I am the only woman, other than Elizabeth May, to be on this platform in the last 18 years. The Liberal Party think, has never had a woman leading. I think, I think Paul, it's time for the party to examine this. I think its Ms. Hall, you'll yeah. perhaps
2: understand that I won't take lessons on caucus management from you. And I-
1: Yeah, it did get a little bit testy sometimes there, as you heard. You also had Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole, who attacked the Liberal leaders' uh, Afghanistan evacuation efforts that his government were, you know, doing just as this election was called. And this whole idea of calling an election while that was happening.
0: Canada should never leave behind people that are at risk because they helped us. When Afghanistan was falling, there were 1,200 Canadians and hundreds more translators and others waiting for help from Canada. What did Mr. Trudeau do? You called an election, sir. You put your own political interests ahead of the well-being of thousands of people. Leadership is about putting others first, not yourself. Mr. Mr. Trudeau, you should not have called this election. You should have gotten the job done in Afghanistan. He called an election in the fourth wave of a pandemic with fires in British Columbia and with unfinished business in Afghanistan. Uh
1: All right. And then there was also, of course, other people uh, participating in this debate, right? And when it came to COVID-19 recovery, NDP leader Jagmeet Singh weighed in, accusing both the Conservatives and the Liberals of cutting programs.
0: Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Trudeau are jumping over each other about who is going to cut help to people first. I don't agree with that approach. I don't think it makes sense to say, oh, I'm going to have people's back but I'm going to cut as quickly as I can. I'm going to cut the help to people who need it as much as they can. We're the only party right here clearly is going to say to you, you're Mm -hmm. not going to have to pay more.
1: We're not going to cut any programs. Okay, and I know I'm not the only person who was wondering why the Bloc Quebecois leader was there when he clearly said, and we heard that earlier, that he was not interested in leading the rest of Canada, that he was only interested in Quebec. So he thought, well, why are you in this debate then when this is supposed to be about federal party leaders? Uh, he did get involved in a couple of discussions, though, for instance, on the issue of reconciliation. Annemie Paul discussed poverty in First Nations and the trauma, of course, that some of those communities have, while also having an exchange with the block leader. We mentioned that uh, um, not that long ago in one of our statements
3: that the residential school system had been replaced by children in care uh, and that this was just perpetuating the legacy of trauma. It really comes back to what I said before, which is that the indigenous leadership is there. It is ready to guide all of these processes. We have all of the recommendations we need. What we are missing is political will. What we are missing is those who have been in power for a very long time, making space for new voices and diverse voices. Um, I actually had to pull my jaw up, which just dropped when I heard what, what Mr. Blanchette said. I invited Mr. Blanchette to uh, get educated about systemic discrimination. I extend that in invitation again, I would be happy to educate them.
0: It's nice to want to educate This is me. my
3: time, sir. It is. So
0: nice time to insult people.
1: That was not an insult. It was an invitation to educate yourself. Uh, okay. Well, you also had some interesting exchanges with Aaron O'Toole and Justin Trudeau. One of them involved the topic of climate change.
0: There is so much we can do to get our emissions down, but grow a strong economy because without a strong economy, we can't
2: tackle climate change, we can't tackle the issues of today. The reality that Mr. O'Toole has never understood is, you can't have a strong economy unless you tackle climate change. And you ask about how we're gonna convince the quarter of Canadians who still don't think climate change is real. Well, Mr. O'Toole can't even convince his party that climate change is real, because they voted against that. And that's perhaps why his plan is so weak. His plan is to go back to the Harper targets, uh, to the Harper approach on fighting climate change, which doesn't work. His costed platform, which you just put out last night, Cuts Mr. Trudeau, billion you have dollars never from climate investments.
1: But right now, let's break down what happened last night in the debate. Joining us now is Mike Couture, our Global National Ottawa correspondent. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Simi. How are you doing? Good, thanks. So we talked to you last night. Two debates, right? Back to back nights. Yesterday, it was the uh, French one that we talked about. Today, we'll talk about the English one. Uh, did it change last night? Do you think the difference in, in how some of the leaders reacted because it was an English language debate?
4: It couldn't have been more different. I mean, when you consider that French, obviously second language for leaders like Annamie Paul, Jugmeet Singh, and Aaron O'Toole, they were a lot more reserved in that French debate. Uh, yesterday, they got their elbows up and they got in there quickly. They actually, I uh, you know, one of my colleagues from the Toronto Star described it as a, a mosh pit more than a debate. And it really was. They were trying as much as they could to land their zingers and land their punches on uh, liberal leader Justin Trudeau. And it was interesting to see Aaron O'Toole, the conservative leader, in, in some cases, sort of sit back a little bit and try and pick his spots uh, where uh, where he could. Um, yves François Blanchette, I think, was at you know at a huge disadvantage, um, is struggling sometimes in English to find some of the words and find some of the terms. Um, but you know, at the same time, he had two other debates where you know he was kind of one of the main combatants. Uh, but he did also complain that uh, he didn't get all uh, you know his fair share of time, which was true. Um, but at the same uh, time, he he didn't in- interject as as often as the others did. Uh, so you know, it was night and day when you consider uh, the French language debate compared to the English one.
1: That's funny that he said that because he also said earlier in the debate he wasn't interested in leading Canada. So... And he's he completely he about lead not Canada, getting- <laughs> Right, he yeah. can't
4: lead Canada unless the you know the the division of power is such that uh, every yeah. other uh, party you know is is sort of decimated. But in, in any case, you know it's one of those things where um, he's at the English, leader, English leaders debate. Um, I, I don't want to say he has nothing to lose, but certainly he's not speaking to his core audience um and so he can kind of say what he wants when he's when he's on that stage
1: so true now i know i wasn't crazy about the format mike i kind of thought it held back the flow of the discussion i know that other people criticized that as well what was the issue do you think
4: i first of all i want to say i'm not going to blame it on the moderator because uh that is an unenviable job uh trying to get five uh political leaders to sort of uh, stay a time stay on topic uh, and actually be respectful to each other I can't imagine how difficult that that could be absolutely uh, would would love one day to do the job but by the same token uh, we've seen in the past how difficult it can be tons of crosstalk as you were talking about uh, and mentioning you know in this format and I think part of it was because it's the one and only English leaders debate where a lot of the leaders feel like they had to get their zingers in they had to get their shots. Uh, and one of the difficulties, though, is by the time um, that sort of free-for-all was uh, wrangled in and uh, Shachi Curl was able to sort of say, okay, now we have to close off this subject, oftentimes it left a leader with just five to ten seconds to make their point that they weren't able to in all of the crosstalk so you can right. see on a number of occasions liberal leader justin trudeau was visibly frustrated at that and was trying to cram his point into that five seconds yeah. i don't know whether or not it served voters in the way uh, that everybody had intended and whether or not they can sort of cut through uh and you know the policy and cut through the crosstalk to understand the policy and the party and how they're going to make their, their decision in In 10 days.
1: Okay, Mike, very quickly, then, if you had to pick a winner, who would it be?
4: Uh, You're putting me on the spot here. (laughs) Definitely, um, you know. Definitely not Yves-François Blanchette is, is is that something I, I, I can yeah. get away with? Yeah. Uh, but uh, look, Justin Trudeau had to play a lot of defense. Trying to convert it to offense was difficult. Uh, and and I think, as I mentioned earlier, when you consider that the, the battle and the elbows getting up was really Trudeau, Singh and Paul, and then O'Toole was able to sit back and sort of pick his spots, I think uh, viewers and voters can sort of look at that yeah. uh, as potentially O'Toole uh, coming out a little, you know, a little unscathed compared to the other ones. Uh, And so, you know, I I don't want to anoint a winner, uh, but I'll just say who came out of it probably cleanest, and that might have been O'Toole.
1: I think you're right. Yep, Mike, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Staff shortages in the healthcare industry are a huge concern right now, whether it is nurses in the emergency room, as we were talking about with Von Palmer earlier, or staff in long term care homes. It is a big worry. And with mandatory vaccinations looming, could that crunch become worse? Well, joining us now is Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Healthcare Providers. Thanks for joining us this morning.
5: Good morning, Simi.
1: How much of this is a concern right now for care homes? Like, are they losing staff because of the issue of mandatory vaccinations?
5: Well, certainly they are hearing that some staff are unhappy and, uh, and are considering leaving. Next week, uh, we start the mandatory vaccine or uh, testing, rapid testing before each shift. And some employees have uh, said they're not going to do that. They're not going to undergo rapid testing which leaves uh, operators with no choice but to put them on um, a leave of absence, an unpaid leave of absence. Uh, but then, you know, in October, it's a double vaccine or or no work. So um, they currently have the option of walking across the street to the hospital, the acute care system, and and getting a job there because the similar policy is not in place there. So that's that's a real concern. Uh, that people will say, look, I, I don't want to take the vaccine, so I'm going to go across the street and work in the hospital rather than in long-term care. And we're under such stress at the moment, as you mentioned at the top, that um, that, that would be a, a, real, uh, a real problem for us to provide proper care.
1: Right. Given what's going on in the acute care system, though, as well, is it not only a matter of time, do you think, before the same policy will apply there?
5: Yes, it is. Uh, Dr. Henry has indicated that. Um, and it's you know it's not a simple task to collect all the personal health numbers, uh, enter the information into a portal, get it all uploaded so the vaccines can be verified. So that's why we've asked for two weeks now that um, the Ministry of Health uh, say that any new employee to acute uh, care system must be double vaccinated. Um, rather than, than applying the policy to everyone immediately, start with new uh, employees, and that would right. stem any movement from long-term care into acute care.
1: Terry, is there not possible to use this new vaccine card system for the benefit of long-term care homes?
5: Well, it, it's um, an interesting question which I posed to the ministry in our call uh, just, uh, just this week. You know, we are, we're going through this very complicated system of gathering personal health numbers, first and last name, date of birth, all of that has to be uploaded through a spreadsheet into a portal. And there's been all kinds of um, technical glitches, as you can imagine, Simi, when you try to stand up a new system like this. You know, name has to be spelled right. exactly right. I mean, sometimes people are trying to, to say, OK, let's try capitalizing the second letter so that it will be accepted by the portal. Whereas I said, well, why can't we just use the vaccine card, yeah. get a QR code reader and boom, bops your uncle. So, um I I think this is a left-hand, right-hand problem, although there may be some technical issues involved. It may not be as simple as it sounds. Uh, but I think probably one part of government is doing one system and one part's doing the other. And hopefully uh, they'll be able to say, hey, how can we make this a unified system that would be simpler for everybody?
1: How do you feel, though, when you hear that there are some workers who are working with you know vulnerable people, they know that's the job, right? They work with people who are in long-term care homes, not in the best of health, and they're still not willing to do this level of protection.
5: Well, it's it's very surprising to me because I mean, people who work in long-term care are passionate about their uh, people for whom they care. They 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 get great satisfaction from their jobs. Uh, you know, they they hang in there when times are tough. They work extra time. They they forgo vacation. So they do whatever they can for these for these residents in care. Uh, so, it's baffling that they won't, um, you know, do something that is the the, the best way to protect uh, the people that they're caring for. So, there's obviously some concern, and, and our, in our survey, we've identified some concerns uh, that, that people have with the vaccine. It hasn't been out that long. What are the side effects? Is it safe, you know, if I'm a childbearing years. Um, and, you know, that information is all out there, but um, you really do need to make sure people one-on-one have that information. So we're working with Safe Care BC, which is a health and safety association. They're developing an education uh, program that, uh, that can do outreach to anyone that wants more information about the vaccine, its safety, its effectiveness. Right. And we just have to keep doing that. Uh, but it is, yeah, you know, I, I I don't understand, to be honest. It just seems like a no-brainer.
1: It does seem like a no-brainer. So if a long-term care home loses even a couple of staff members at this point, Terry, because of this policy, what, is that, what does that do?
5: puts the others under a lot of stress. And, you know, people working in long-term care have, have not been able to take holidays for the better part of a year and a half. They've been working overtime. Uh, like many of the stories we hear about the whole health care system, they go to work, they feel... Like, it's going to be, you know, a hell day because they're short on their line. Um, they don't have the support uh, because people are off. Uh, they haven't been able to have new people hired. It's it's tough. And then when you, you know, like four or five people in a in a team of, of 50 uh, don't show up or quit because of this policy or walk across the street to the hospital to work, uh, it puts them under additional pressure. And so, you know, I, I just... I can't say enough how important it is that we get a policy in place for acute care just as soon as possible, because that will, I think, stem any kind of migration. And uh, we we have to have this before next week.
1: Right. Okay. so what you're asking for is let's get this mandatory vaccination policy in place for all workers in health care and let's simplify the system.
5: Yeah, and if we're not going to do all workers in healthcare right away, let's start let's start with new employees because it's easy enough when you're hiring someone to make sure that they're vaccinated rather than, you know, uploading everybody into a system. Let's start with new employees so that people know they don't have the choice to walk across the street and get a job with the health authority.
1: All right, Terry, listen, we'll keep in touch on this one. I'll interesting to see how this one works out. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Simmy. Terry Lake, CEO of the BC Healthcare Providers. I mean, it would just make sense to use the vaccine card, wouldn't it? You've got everybody filling out this form. It's very simple. It's on their phone. Boom, it can be scanned. Do it to go into a restaurant. Why not have to do it, you know, just to show that you can go into work at a long-term care home that you are vaccinated? Why create a whole new system for that? If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is
0: Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, let's talk about jobs because it was a pretty Busy summer, I would say, on the employment front, where a lot of economies were opening back up. Remember the big step here in BC that we took July 1st. Well, how did the month of August look when it came to jobs? Well, there's some interesting BC-related numbers in there. So joining us now is Ravi Kailan, the Minister of Employment and Jobs and Economic Recovery. Thanks for being back with us.
6: Good morning, Timmy. Thank you for having me.
1: Well, how did BC do? I know that there are some kind of unique things about BC when it comes to these jobs numbers for August, right?
6: Well, um, you know, the positive, uh, it's really positive news for BC. Uh, BC is the only province in the country that is pre-pandemic employment level or higher than pre-pandemic employment levels, uh, And this is the third month in, in a row. So it's, it's very positive. And, uh, and what particularly makes me happy is that we've got 94% of all the jobs that we gained this month were actually employment opportunities for women. So that's, again, very positive for us
1: okay so third consecutive month bc was the only province to have employment above pre-pandemic levels where are those jobs why are there more jobs now
6: well we're starting to see an increase in uh employment in both hospitality and tourism we're starting to see a pickup in uh, people being able to travel and uh and uh, enjoy the beauty of british columbia so uh, that was a big increase that we saw this uh, last month. Uh, of course, we've been doing very well in tech and manufacturing, and even in construction throughout the pandemic. Uh, but seeing these numbers, which were really struggling, increase, uh, is a very positive sign.
1: So, where yeah, exactly? Where are the areas where you still think we need to work on? Like, where can we improve?
6: Well, there's going to be, uh, the recovery is going to take time. Uh, we know that until we can have international tourists come to British Columbia, uh, that tourism uh, and our hospitality sector will still face uh, pressures. Uh, we also know that we have limited capacity at, at a lot of our venues. And uh, and as the vaccine card rolls out and over time, as we start increasing the amount of people that are um, able to uh, attend soccer games, for example, or visit restaurants, we will start seeing those numbers increase. And so I think those are the next steps that we're watching closely.
1: Right. Are you concerned, though, that the people who perhaps used to be in those jobs, particularly in tourism and hospitality, have moved on and found other positions now, that they're not there to go back to those jobs?
6: No, I think you're right, Simi. That exactly has happened. I mean, when we saw... A lot of uh, the uh, unemployment in tourism and hospitality, we did see a shift in people taking other employment opportunities. But what we're seeing in the pandemic is that the average wage of a worker has gone up considerably. And so uh, we see that as a positive sign where people have taken up opportunities uh, used uh, reskilling or upskilling opportunities through our education system and taken up opportunities that pay a little bit more. But that, of course, leaves us with challenges where we know there are some uh, retailers, some of those in uh, in the hospitality sector that are finding some challenges to to find uh, workers. And, uh, and we're, of course, investing in skills training and reskilling employees so that they can take up those opportunities as well.
1: Hey, but where are we going to find people? Where are we going to find those workers?
6: Well, it's a challenge to me, Uh, you know, the fact that we are 101.1% of pre-pandemic employment level, it means that uh, we need to find more people. And so part of the solution is uh, like we made the investment of $95 million to uh, skills and reskilling those that want to take up those opportunities. But we also will need immigration, uh, and uh, we want people to be able to come here and live here and stay here and bring families and, and strengthen our community. So it's going to be a partnership with the federal government for sure.
1: Right. So you're saying that that doesn't sound like, though, that's going to get fixed anytime soon
6: well this is uh it's a challenge that's going to take some time, but again we're still in the pandemic and there's a lot of moving pieces that are happening and uh what we're also starting to see is more people that uh, were um, maybe not working in the pandemic are slowly starting to come back to the workforce and uh you know that steady increase over time will help address some of the gaps we have but uh you know we do have challenges and uh uh, we're starting to see people from other provinces come to BC for opportunities as well. So there's going to be a whole host of things that we have to do to address that challenge, but we're working on it.
1: All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you,
6: Simi. Take care.
1: Appreciate that. That's Ravi Kalan, the Minister of Employment and Jobs and Economic Recovery here in BC. You heard that number correctly. BC is at 101% of pre-pandemic employment, meaning we have more people working now than we did before the pandemic. And as Statistics Canada pointed out this morning, that is the third consecutive month that BC was the only province to achieve that, to have employment above pre-pandemic levels. Uh, Across the country, the unemployment rate sits at 7.1%. We did do better than expected. We added about 90,000 jobs to the economy. But for BC, the challenge is, where are we going to find more people to fill all the jobs that are still wanting out there?
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Now, there's a lot of good things about hockey culture and sports culture, but there are some bad things too. And this latest development that is being done by a local junior team, maybe this could spread and maybe this would really help to change hockey culture for the better. So, what are they doing? Well, we're going to find out right now. Joining us now is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter. Good morning, Janet. Good morning,
7: Simi, and I love this story, and I think all the hockey parents out there right now listening are also going to really love this story. Here we have an executive at the junior level with the Coquitlam Express. He's the general manager, Tally Campbell. He's only 26. And I think this has a lot to do with it too, Simi. He's young, he's a young executive. And he wants to change, as you say, the culture of hockey starting with these young men. And he, the young men who play on his team are between the ages of 16 and 20. And he says what is needed in hockey and it's starting with his team is somebody to look at. After the emotional and mental well-being of the players, his team has recently hired a director of team assistance, and Mr. Campbell talks more about it here.
8: You know, for too long, our, our entire focus in hockey is let's get these guys tough on the ice. Let's make sure they can battle through anything. And I think society perceives hockey players in general as these you know big, mean, tough guys, um, and then you know they can take hits and they can give hits and they can lock shots and and, and all that, you know, hockey term stuff. But at the end of the day, these at this this level, especially, these are just kids and they're going through adolescence and they're, you know, uh, maturing as the day comes on. They've got a lot of things in front of them, whether it be, you know, trying to get a scholarship in hockey, uh, you know, trying to, you know, just make the next practice, um, you know, do schooling and all this. And we really realized, you know, especially last year through the pandemic and getting to spend a lot more time with these guys in the dressing room that, you know, we are not equipped uh, -equipped well-equipped in the department of helping these guys, uh, mentally. And so it was my priority in the off season was to bring someone on board that was be able to assist these players who's not necessarily a part of the hockey operations staff. Um, and, and, you know, again, you know, speaking the truth, it, it's hard for a player to come speak to the general manager about some troubles because again, society has not allowed that wall to be broken down yet. And, and players are still scared that if I go speak to my GM about uh, trouble I'm having off the ice, is it going to affect, you know, what he you know does on the ice to me? Um, so we basically said, let's bring someone in who's kind of a, a third-party person who doesn't necessarily have the, the power and control to trade players, release players, or, or discipline players, um, but still has an, an outlet to talk to until we get that wall broken down uh, for these players to know that our doors are open you know, 24-7. And in our organization, we have a pretty good open-door policy on that, um, but I still know the... Um, the the pressure exists from players not wanting to always confide to their general manager, their head coach of, of what might be going on in their personal life.
1: Um, Janet, I absolutely love this. Is do you think there's going to be though um, a transition here? Because you know you mentioned how young he is. Not everybody else is. Not all other executives are as young as him.
7: <laughs> well, that's true, and uh, you know that's something I asked him, it's still early in the season, are players taking advantage of this? But he was saying, you know, it's only going to take one player. It's only going to take one person to step up and take advantage of this, and then before you know it, the others will too. And he says, first and foremost, this has become very popular among parents. Parents are loving this idea, because let's face it, as, as a parent, You know, uh, a lot of times we do have good communication with our children, whether they play hockey or not, but sometimes we don't. And sometimes it requires a third party to come in and maybe talk with our kids about some of the struggles and challenges they're having. And as he says, he is the general manager of the team. He's the boss of the organization. And sometimes players are afraid to, to talk to the boss. Sometimes, you know, employees are afraid to talk to the boss about what they're dealing with. So that's when a third party is needed. So I told him, I'm going to check in with him maybe six months down the road and see how things are going. Is this helping the players? Are they taking advantage of it? And I think it'll be interesting to compare.
1: Well, you know, there's nothing that hockey loves, sports loves more than a trend, right? Whether it's Moneyball or something like this, if enough players talk about this, and then they go to other teams, and they talk about how great it is, like I can see this spreading. Well,
7: he was saying, you know, this is already available at the higher level of hockey in the NHL. They're, those players can go in and get help. And just like here at Chorus and CKNW, we have those supports available to us now, especially since COVID-19 and so many struggles. And, and that's a great support for employees. And Mr. Campbell was saying, everybody struggles, Simi. Everybody's going to agree with that. Everybody struggles. It doesn't matter what you do, who you are. It's okay not to be okay. It's okay to have a rough day. It's okay to say, you know what, I have to talk to somebody. Um and And this is heavy and it's become very heavy, especially during the pandemic. And he is breaking down the barriers. And I think he's not the only one, but I think in the junior level of hockey, he is the only one right now. And as you say, hopefully it will spread, but among other places in life, other companies, like yeah. I say, Chorus, you know, they are breaking down the barriers, saying it's okay not to be okay. And here's somebody for you to talk to if you need help. And I think it's, it's, it's a great move. It's a great decision. And it can
1: only result in positive benefits. It's so fascinating, though, Janet, when you say this is available at the highest levels, right? It's available at the NHL. But really, where it would have the most impact is to help that at the younger level before they get that, get up there.
7: Absolutely. And see here's something else he said, as I said, Mr. Campbell's only 26 years old. And he said he remembers when he was in high school, the difficulties of juggling school, personal relationships, social life, and so forth. And he says, you know, that would only be compounded when you add a high performance sport to that mix. And he's so true, because in hockey, at this level in the BC Hockey League and above, if your schooling is not up to snuff, then hockey is over. You sit on the sidelines. So it's, there is a lot of pressure on these boys at this age because their goal is to get into the NHL. So they are trying to achieve a higher level and it is difficult and there are a lot of pressures and quite often they only have time for school and hockey and sometimes not a lot of social life, not a lot of personal relationships And in there. So it's good for them yeah. to have this opportunity to talk to somebody for some help.
1: Oh, I love this idea so much. Janet, thanks for telling us about it this morning.
7: My pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, Simi. And
1: that is Janet Brown, our Global News senior reporter, with this great story about the BC Hockey League's Coquitlam Express. Their general manager, Tally Campbell, decided that they needed to do things differently. So they have hired, and this is the first time in junior hockey in Canada this has been done, they have hired a director of team assistant, somebody that the players on the team can go to to just talk about their struggles, if they need some help, if they're having a tough time, whatever the case may be. And that's just unheard of at that level, but can you imagine how significant that is? They may not be able to talk to their parents or their coach or the general manager, but now they have somebody that they know they can go to.